tensions are on the rise in East Asia. China's aggressive muscle flexing around Taiwan has reached a bit of a tipping point. Now, Taiwan says that Beijing is increasing its military activities, and the situation could potentially spiral out of hand even by accident. The self-ruled island claims that China is, in fact, ratcheting up pressure on it because China believes Taiwan is a renegade province, a breakaway territory that Beijing wants to bring under its control. Now, Beijing has been increasing its maneuvering and this could spark an accidental war. Now, for the past two weeks, China has been trying to assert its sovereignty in the region. A series of Chinese drones, fighters, bombers and aircraft have been circling around Taiwan. Now, earlier on Friday, 24 Chinese military aircraft had entered into Taiwan's air defense identification zone out of which at least about 17 crossed the median line of the Taiwan Strait. China's also been trying to create terror in the sea. Its warships and carriers, the Shandong, has been operating the South China Sea. Last week, China has also dispatched more than 100 military ships for regional exercises. The China's southern and eastern theater commands have been operating together off Taiwan's east coast, and Taiwan's defense minister has said that in such a scenario of heightened risk, both sides must pay attention. The China's Shandong was first spotted by Taiwan on the 11th of September, when it was participating in war stimulation drills. China is now displaying its ability to operate way further away from its own coastline. It's also been operating now near Taiwan's east coast. Now, the thing to note here is that Taiwan's traditional military planning has been confined to eastern coast, where its two major air bases are located. Now, this is the area that does not face China directly, but China is now showing that this area is not beyond its reach. Now, in the last 24 hours, China has in fact dialed down, according to Taiwan, which says that it would not escalate the situation, but at the same time, would not allow for repeated provocations from China. Beyond is now available in your country. Download the app now and get all the news on the move. You heard it, folks. The Indo-Pak war drums are beating louder and louder every day. Welcome to More War Mondays here on the uh, Rob Manus Show on the Red Voice Media Network. We're the most dangerous network in, the Mer in America because we bring you the facts and the truth, whether you like it or not. Well, news of the Chinese president's purge of senior leaders such as his Defense Minister in recent weeks comes in the context of China's weakening economy and that major military force movements are happening, as you just saw. Just since mid-September, we've seen six of China's roll-on, roll-off ferries leave their normal routes and reposition to ports in Fujian province just across the straits from Taiwan. Late last week and over the weekend, video of massive armor movements by rail leaked out of China, and record numbers of Chinese Communist warplanes are flying into Taiwan's air defense zones all the way around the island. The U.S. and China continue to hold high-level meetings, with the most recent being National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan with China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi, who has told the U.S. that, quote, Taiwan is the most important red line in their relationship. We're seeing what appears to be a strategic shift backed by operational and tactical movements. Is this actual preparation for an invasion of Taiwan or more military exercise saber rattling? Author and retired U.S. Army colonel and former senior DOD official John Mills joins me again to discuss these chilling events. John, welcome back to The Rob Manus Show, sir. Hey, Rob, thank you. An honor to be on your show. And, uh, yeah, I just got off a plane from uh, Panama. And uh, <laughs> I saw your pictures of the, of the traffic jam uh, down there. Uh, and uh, we'll just start off with that. I had a question about it because your comment was, you see this traffic jam, this will be a problem that the Chinese Navy faces if they do ever decide to invade Taiwan. What do you mean by that? Well, yeah, the, uh, <clears throat> what we saw, and I was in Panama uh, for several reasons, but uh, the Armada, uh, especially off the Pacific coast, of uh, which is south of Panama, the way Panama twists around, that's exactly what marshalling of uh, vessels for an amphibious assault looks like, uh, kind of World War II-like, and because uh, you're going to have a lot of vessels. Some are waiting to go to the pier, load up. Some have already been at the pier and loaded up. The pier area is an absolute mess. 
tests. But then you go into marshalling areas as they start to move into their, uh, as they start to assemble for their movement plan. And uh, that this it is a little concerning because we haven't seen this before. Fujian is the province right across from Taiwan. And uh, now we're starting to see assembly activities. Now, I think this is an exercise right now, but they're also they're also testing us to see what our response is going to be. Yeah, let's. Uh, I've got a still picture uh, I want to show of a snapshot of ship movements in that area. Disco, bring up uh, pick one. So uh, down in the lower part of this picture, you see the island of Taiwan, folks, and 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 these Bohai ships are roll-on, roll-off ferries. They can move massive amounts of cargo. Roll-on means it's vehicular cargo, like a tank or a truck, uh, and roll-off means they just drive them on and then drive them off when they get to their destination. Normally, they're up to the north there where the circle is, uh, right, John? But now we're seeing those move down to the Fujian province. That's something that, that you taught me last year about keeping an eye on the movements of these types of capability. You can go ahead and bring that down now, uh, Disco. So that's a that's a pretty big indicator that they're either doing some kind of major uh, involving all platforms across all the surfaces, uh, more than likely, uh, since you see so much air and other naval vessels. Yeah, and uh, what I've kind of thought about is a uh, – Rob, can you hear me? I'm getting some noise. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Okay, I I'm, I'm, was hearing some noise. Um, <clears throat> if you just drop a few mines across the top of the channel uh, and then the bottom of the channel, you really create a kill box. One, any amphibious invasion has to cross that line of mines. And, and you saw several of those ships up around, uh, that would be Shanghai. And uh, so those come down south, they have to breach that line of mines across the top of the channel. Uh, and those just, uh, so you can only come straight across toward Taiwan. You create a kill box and you put a line of mines along the southern part of the uh, Taiwan Straits. Again, you create a barrier. So what do they want to, these amphibious warfare vessels, these uh, uh, secundered uh, commercial vessels, do you really want to have them cross that line of mines to try and get to the to the uh, western beaches of Taiwan facing China? I mean, right there, you're putting your ships at risk. And so either you have to fit out all your ships within that, that narrow area that's directly across from uh, Taiwan, or you come across the Pacific Ocean side to the eastern beaches. And landing on the eastern beaches means you're landing right at the base of the hilly area, because Taiwan is about two-thirds hills and mountains. You got a thin coastal strip facing China, and most of it through the middle and to the Pacific side are uh, hills and mountains. <clears throat> most of the population and the TSMC chip, uh, chip plants are on facing China. So you, you create all kind of complications for the Chinese, uh, Chinese amphibious assault. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it looks pretty tricky to me. Uh, to take it up back to a strategic level a little bit, I mean, these indicators uh, when you combine them with, uh, looks like Chi has removed uh, almost all of his senior leadership, uh, including the defense minister now. Uh, usually that, that's a pretty big indicator in the old indicator and warnings bucket uh, for some type of activity to occur externally, isn't it? Yeah, right. Uh, so she comes back from the BRICS conference in South Africa, and this is what I was saying is watch out. Watch out what happens when he comes back, because uh, uh, last time he left the country, it was 90 days of high drama and chaos with the white paper uprising and a rumors of coups and counter coups. <clears throat> and right now he comes back. He'd already replaced uh, Quinn, his foreign minister, 
uh, Li, his uh, nuclear force commander, and now Li Shengfeng, another Li, uh, was replaced as soon as he got back. That was essentially his. Uh, uh, that was essentially his Lloyd Austin equivalent, uh, and uh, he replaced him. So high stakes, high drama once again from a foreign trip. Uh, do you make anything of it that these major uh, force movements, uh, that let's call them you know, major exercises for now, uh, since we're not sure exactly what's going on with it, uh, uh, come on the heels of removing the defense minister? Well, yeah, it's interesting. So they're trying to conduct command and control of major activities after losing their defense minister. So, yeah, it's probably part of it is uh, probably part of it is she uh, um, uh, trying to demonstrate and the PLA trying to demonstrate they can operate even after the decapitation of their leadership. Uh, so this is interesting, but I don't think we've really seen marshalling activities like this before. And again, I think it's, I think it's an exercise, but even being an exercise, they're testing and watching our response. And the more they do this and they don't get an immediate response out of this, the more likely they're going to continue to do this. Yeah. I was going to ask you if you, if you had seen any, uh, uh, I was looking for it today, and, I, and nothing really jumped out at me, but I was looking for activity, increased naval activity in the South China Sea around the islands that the Chinese have declared are their territory uh, over the past two weeks. Uh, I mean, there was some reporting in early September, but I, but I didn't see anything recent. Are, are you hearing or seeing anything about that? Because that would, that would be something different, too, combined with all these other movements. That would be a new, a new twist if they were— doing that all at the same time, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't. I haven't heard them about doing that. Now they they have uh, the highest number of aircraft sorties. <clears throat> I mean, they're getting up to simultaneously 40, 60 aircraft. Now I'm a little. Some of the reporting has been a little confusing because I've seen numbers up to a hundred, but I don't know if that's cumulative for a week or a hundred at one time of Chinese aircraft challenging the sovereignty. A hundred at a time. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, so uh, uh, the reporting, as always in these in these situations, is a little bit confusing. So we have to kind of filter through it to try to make sense. Uh, but they just a very high number of uh, of aircraft sorties, of uh, naval ship activities, plus these marsh now these large scale marshaling activities, which we really have haven't seen before. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about, uh, but uh, uh, but you've had one book out. It's called uh, "The Nation Will Follow," but you're releasing a brand new book. I see it on the on the stand, sitting behind you. Just go bring up the book cover for John, so he can talk about his book up for a second before we take this first break. Uh, the War Against the Deep State. Uh, this is a very intriguing uh, title, Colonel Mills. Uh, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, so the uh, <clears throat> this is a follow-on to the nation will follow with my uh, with my Durham uh, uh, submissions. This is about the fourth, fifth, and sixth branches of government. Uh, this is about the uh, creation of the well, it's the administrative state. Yeah. Which is em embodied really in the uh, embodied really in the uh, uh, the EPA uh, and their overreach. They've been schwacked down uh, twice, ser uh, very seriously. But uh, they they are going to be relentless. Uh, the Biden and the blue team is relentless on building this administrative state, which admit, uh, uh, regulations are not law. That's the whole problem. Uh, but they they've been acting as if the EPA's regulations have the force of law, and then it's the surveillance state. And that's the marriage of uh, federal law enforcement, federal intelligence, and big tech. And part of it was the mass surveillance program. I, I was one of the key team members on from 20, uh, 2007 to 2014, uh, where uh, really the, the, the surveillance became pervasive and really uh, in many ways became unlawful. And then the sixth branch of government, which are the nonprofits and the non, the nonprofit, all for nonprofits, but they have just begun to develop a huge and immense and unlawful uh, influence over our governmental activities. 
Yeah, that's, that's good that you're bringing that out because I don't think anybody's really done that before. A lot of folks understand the, the fourth branch of unelected government that's the unofficial one, the bureaucracy, the federal bureaucracy, but not the fifth and sixth. That's a, that's a, new, uh, a new set of lenses to look through, but it's, it's very much needed because things have changed so much, in the, especially in the last 20 years and everything. John, well, we've got to take our first commercial break. When we come back, uh, Wall Street Journal put out an article about why these aircraft are doing what they're doing uh, around Taiwan now that's different. And we'll talk about that when we come right back. The Rob Mana Show, Red Voice Media. Attention Americans, breaking news. Biden's dangerous plan for a digital dollar is underway. Don't be fooled. It won't benefit you. Take action now. The Federal Reserve phase deployment of FedNow began on July 1st, 2023. Be prepared. This may catch many off guard. Your hard-earned assets are in jeopardy. But there's a simple legal tax loophole to opt out of the digital dollar. Reach out to American Alternative Assets for a free wealth protection guide and discover how to safeguard your wealth with gold and silver IRAs against a failing dollar and volatile markets. Visit protectfrombiden.com. This invaluable guide provides precise steps to transfer your IRA or 401k into precious metals without any tax consequences. Be smart. Don't let Biden force you into using the government new digital dollar. Visit protectfrombiden.com to get your free guide and get started. Again, that's protectfrombiden.com. Uh, you just saw the breaking news about Biden's dangerous plan for the digital dollar. And, and yeah, it is being implemented as we speak. Uh, so don't be fooled. It's not going to benefit you or anybody else that you know. You can act now, though, before it's too late. Uh, the Federal Reserve's phased deployment of what they're calling FedNow started on July 1st of this year. So uh, this, if this catches you off guard, it did me too. Uh, your hard-earned assets really are at risk, but there's a way to legally opt out of the digital dollar in time, just like you saw in the ad. Uh, and that's with one straightforward, entirely legal tax loophole. You can call my friends at American Alternative Assets for a free wealth protection guide. Learn how to safeguard your wealth from a failing dollar and volatile markets with gold and silver IRAs. Dial 833, the number 2, USA Gold. That's right. Call now, 833-287-2465. This guide will outline the precise steps you need to take to transfer your IRA or 401k into precious metals without any tax consequences. Don't let Biden force you into using the government's new digital dollar. Call 833, the number 2, USA Gold. That's right. Call now, 833 287 2465. That's 833-2-USA-GOLD. Well, welcome back to the Rob Mana Show. We're uh, getting an update on the China-Taiwan situation. It's really the China-U.S.-Taiwan uh, and our allies situation. Uh, we're talking with retired U.S. Army Colonel John Mills, who studies this area uh, very in very much detail all the time, much more than anybody else I know, uh, and is very familiar with what's going on there. Uh, well, John, let me show you this clip real quick. It's real short. Just go bring up clip two uh, and play that one about the aircraft uh, and what they're really doing. This is the Taiwan Strait. In recent years, China has sent military aircraft across the strait and towards the island southwest on a near daily basis, repeatedly testing Taiwan's ability to respond to an invasion along its west coast. But this year, China began doing something new. In April and May, Chinese aerial drones went further than ever before, encircling the entire island, and fighter jets were detected on the island's east coast. Military experts say Taiwan has always relied on its mountainous terrain as a natural shield in the event of an attack, looking to its east as a safe place to refuel and rearm its fighter jets if the west coast fell. Well, that's from the Wall Street Journal. They're kind of in the, they straddle the pro-war, neocon type line. But, uh, but for them to, to publish something like that, John, I think is, is very compelling. Uh, and, uh, and they're right. That's what they're doing. Uh, 
and, because, and it's really because the Taiwanese airbase, their military airbases are on the east side of the island, aren't they? Yeah, you got, uh, I'm not going to do the homework for the Chinese for them. There are X number of bases. Uh, Taiwanese bases on the east side. Again, that east side is actually a very, very narrow strip because uh, then you immediately go into the mountains and the hills. <clears throat> there are several ports. There are several airfields. Uh, even in the mountainous areas, they've been able to uh, establish airfields. Uh, they're well bunkered, uh, and I've been to some of these uh, facilities. Uh, some of them go back to the days when we had nukes. People forget we had nukes in Taiwan, and the Air Force had the uh, Matador and the Mace ground launch missile uh, in uh, the nuclear missile uh, on the uh, west side facing China. That was part of our nuclear deterrence. But what uh, that, that article was talking about, and yeah, this did start earlier this year, is they started to demonstrate a pervasive a drone, armed drone patrol. Now, let me, just, let me just clarify what I just said. These were drones capable of carrying weapons. Essentially, they're knockoffs of our Reaper drone, uh, but even our Global Hawk drone. No, we don't. We don't uh, announce a capability of the Global Hawk, Hawk to carry any kind of ordinance. It may or may not, but that's not publicly stated uh, in any way. But uh, <clears throat> their equivalents uh, can carry weapons. Uh, not saying they were seen carrying weapons, but they've shown a, a pervasive 24-7 on the east side. So that's a, that's a strategic signal. Now, what they also need, uh, that article also referenced some fighter aircraft on the uh, on the uh, east side of Taiwan. Those r really can only get there either through aerial refueling uh, or through, from the two active carriers. And they got the Fujian and the Shandong. Both of those, they are, do not have catapults or traps. Uh, which means those aircraft have to take take off very light, and they have to land very light. You can't come back with ordnance. If you have to come back and you got ordnance, you got to dump it, and that's wasteful. Uh, it also hurts dolphins and things like that. But uh, um, what they're really, what I've started to think is that the real pacing item for conflict is the readiness of carrier number three, the Fujian, just coincidentally called the Fujian, like the province. And that one has three electromagnetic catapults. They ripped off the, they ripped off the design from us. The, the test model is up at uh, Joint Base uh, McGuire Lakehurst Dix, or that it's a three. Yeah, I mean that's where they have uh, Lake Lakehurst is where they have the the test electromagnetics. <clears throat> We've had challenges with them. Maybe they did. Maybe they figured it out, and uh, then we can rip off their improvements and rip them off and back to our side, and then use them to because we were having some problems with our electromagnetics. It also has. Uh, uh, arresting gear, which means those J-15s can take off a lot heavier with a lot more ordnance, and if they need to land, they can land with the ordnance and not dump it. Um, so, uh, so once that carrier number three is ready, that's I think because if you need two carriers, one at the top end, one at the right shoulder, one at the bottom shoulder of Taiwan, you're going to have to. If you want two, you're going to have to have three. Because yeah. one, of, one of those ships, one of those major platforms, just like aircraft, just like tanks, you're always going to have a certain number cycling through maintenance. That's the way it goes. If you, if you have 100 aircraft, that doesn't mean you have 100 aircraft ready to fly. If you have 100 tanks, it doesn't mean you have 100 tanks ready. It means X number are ready, X number are going, Y number are going so through maintenance. We in this business live through uh, what we in the Air Force called MC rates, mission capable rates. It's the rate that you have aircraft that are ready to fly a mission, a combat mission. Uh, and that's what you have to base your planning on. You can't base it on the full size of your fleet uh, because they're machines built by human beings. They break. You know, they're designed to do certain things, and sometimes they get used for things that are not designed to do, and they break. And sometimes they just break sitting on the damn ground uh, when it comes to aircraft. <laughs> so the uh, I'm not an ex admitted I'm not an admitted expert on the Chinese carriers. I, I haven't really studied them, uh, but it's my understanding the two operational carriers are ski ramp launch type with no catapult, like you said. Uh, so. 
that makes you able to carry less airframes, less fuel, less ordnance, less crew, really, because because uh, it's it it shrinks your usable maintenance and uh, and flying you know flight operations space quite a bit when you have that big ski ramp thing taking up a lot of your deck, right? Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's better than nothing, but. Um... You, you really, and, and the metric for a carrier is how many sorties can you generate? And you also, it's really the weight of that those sorties. Because an yeah. F-18, uh, an F-18 fully loaded, uh, I think is like, uh, I think we're approaching 70,000 pounds for a fully loaded F-18. That's our, our major aircraft is the F-35 comes into greater use. So let's say it's 70,000. Well, if you don't have catapults, if you don't have tra- traps, uh, that 70,000 uh, pound F-18 becomes a 35,000 pound F-18, which means you only have about you only have about enough fuel for about a 40 minute sortie. That's not very long. Now, they expected uh, uh, an air refuel <laughs> capability off of the carrier, like we have. I mean, we 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 yeah. turn. We turn, we've turned fighter airplanes into air refueling capable airplanes in the U.S. Navy, uh, so you can have a tanker up. Uh, uh, if you have to take off lightweight, you do it in fuel and then and then refuel right after takeoff. Uh, have they perfected that capability yet? No, uh, not like us. So out of a carrier air wing, you usually have four to six of your junkiest F-18F models that are really carrying fuel and they're great they're there then they can carry a lot of fuel uh they don't have that yet uh they don't they don't have anything like that uh those those i think the j their their, their aircraft uh, i think it's the j-15s they can be refueled but it's mm-hmm. going to have to be from a, a ground-based uh, uh a refueler off of the mainland and that exposes as that tanker travels over the north of the island or the south of the island, that's a nice big juicy target to take out. Because once things start flying, as soon as you see one of the, one of their tankers in the air, you're gonna you're gonna take it out. You don't want it doing its mission. Now, John, in those islands that they've created down uh, uh, in the South China Sea and declared their territory, uh, some of those have military airfields on them, don't they? Yeah, yeah, several of them uh, have a fully capable military airfields with hardened aircraft shelters. I mean, they've 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 built up those islands often from nothing. They might have had a minor shoal at best, just a rock minor rock outcropping, uh, cropping sticking above the the surface of the ocean. But they've built them up. So yeah, they do. Uh, those uh, and those are to the south, but but some of the more northern ones could potentially uh, enable activities especially to the south of Taiwan. So, uh, um, but a lot of those south, uh, those are really to create a bastion, a bastion so they can defend their ballistic missile submarines because their ballistic missile submarines to slip out into the deep ocean, their most likely point of transit is going to be between Taiwan and the northern Philippine island of Luzon. And guess what? We've now announced, and you were in on this, Rob, uh, when we wrote some uh, papers for a white papers for the Center for Security Policy, we encourage not only an, a rearming of Luzon, American forces on the north of Luzon, which four base camps have been announced, but also it's the uh, Botanese Islands, a small mm-hmm. island chain that's essentially, they're Filipino islands halfway in between Taiwan and the Philippines, and now we're arming those also. And that is a that is a death blow to any Chinese nuclear submarines trying to sleep slip out into the deep ocean because we control that island and we put sensors there, maybe even some anti-submarine capability. That's going to be very dicey for those Chinese submarines to slip out to the deep ocean. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, every uh, every combat ship uh, that has a helicopter deck on it has the capability to be anti-submarine warfare. ASW, uh, I'm sure we're going to plan on flying P-8 Poseidons, the P-3 replacement uh, uh, out there uh, to jam that up, you know? Uh, and, then, and then there's a matter of, uh, uh, of our carriers that, are, that we keep operational uh, 
to be able to move into position. Uh, I mean, how many how many carriers are dedicated to the pack fleet uh, operationally at any one time? Not in dry dock, not in refit, at all. Oh, that's a, that's a great question. We our congressional requirement is for elective eleven active carriers for the U.S. Navy. Essentially, the way it's apportioned is essentially six to seven are for the Pacific. Uh, the Atlantic and the rest of the get five. Now we have one forward based. I think it's still the Reagan out of Yokosuka in Japan. Uh, the rest of the carriers on the West Coast are either in Everett, Washington. So we should have about two to three up. I think we just have two up there, two based up there. Um, and so that's that amounts to three. And then I think we have three to four out of San Diego. We don't, everybody thinks we have carriers in, Ho, in uh, Pearl Harbor. We do not base carriers at this time in Pearl Harbor. Um, that's a very tight harbor, very tight harbor. Um, now, potentially, we could start forward basing in Guam. Uh, but, you know, really, you know, I'm not going to say how because I have a secret way uh, of, of monitoring where our aircraft carriers are at. But normally, we only have one, maybe two at sea in the Western Pacific at one time. So yeah. uh, it, it's not a whole lot of it's. It, it's, it's good. Now, we could surge another carrier or two, uh, but normally we only have one or two. But if we can run a, a, an undersea cable from Botanese Island, the island grouping, put 10 miles to the north, 10 miles to the south of a, a new undersea cable to uh, censor that, that opening, man, it's going to be a bad day for any Chinese submarines that will run that gauntlet between the Philippines and Taiwan. Yeah, we got to take another break, and I want to talk about submarines uh, in the context of why the heck Taiwan is a vital national interest uh, to the United States, John, when we come back uh, after these messages. We'll be right back. If you're like me and you want to be prepared for the unexpected... That's where the wellness company's emergency medical kit comes Over in. Over 40% of Americans say that they would avoid a doctor or a hospital unless it was a catastrophic situation. Medical emergency kits with ivermectin. The kit contains eight potentially life-saving medications for you to keep on hand in the event of natural disasters, supply chain shortages, medical emergencies, or like an apocalyptic situation. These are the actual medications that you would need in the event of certain situations. So they've got emergency antibiotics, antivirals, antiparasitics. Beijing is upping pressure on Taiwan. The regime sent over 100 fighter jets near the island on Monday. In just 24 hours, almost half of the aircraft crossed the Taiwan Strait's median line. Another 50 warplanes flew near the island on Tuesday. The looming threat involves more than just Taiwan. The island is critical for American security. Sitting on a chain of islands stretching from Japan to Malaysia, Taiwan is a key choke point. It blocks China from accessing the deep waters off the island's southeastern coast, an area Beijing could use to launch and conceal submarine-based nuclear attacks against the continental U.S. The Chinese regime has been building airfields and stationing fighters and drones on its coastline about 100 miles from Taiwan. We bring you the facts and the truth whether you like it or not, and you're not going to like a lot of what we bring to you because the mainstream media folks just isn't telling you for the most part. Uh, we're talking today with retired U.S. Army Colonel John Mills, former senior DOD official and author uh, of the new book, The War on the Deep State, uh, and his first book, uh, The Nation Will Follow. Uh, well, John, that little cartoon graphic there, uh, kind of hit on everything we've talked about so far and that you mentioned just before the break, and that is the submarine breakout capability that China really needs. You know, the Soviets, uh, uh, when the Soviet Union existed, they, they did that 
that North Sea run, if I remember correctly, and we we put a lot of intelligence capability uh, there and then in the in the Mediterranean for any Black Sea breakouts uh, that might come from a submarine perspective, so that we could, because the trick in the nuclear war, uh, warfare really is knowing where your the other side's subs are that can launch their their ballistic missiles, their long, really long-range missiles. Uh, and uh, it certainly looks like the Chinese are working towards that Soviet Navy-style capability to break out there. And uh, I don't know that we've dedicated the resources and the and the the more importantly the manpower to build a network of intelligence capability like we had in the North Atlantic and, and uh, just outside of Gibraltar in the, in the Mediterranean Sea to be able to monitor uh, the, the Chinese submarine forces like we did the Soviet forces. <clears throat> Are we working, working on that or is it already happened and America just doesn't know it because it's so classified? Well, we uh, uh, at the height of the Cold War, we had a, a very robust and mature SOSIS underwater sensor capability, essentially a grid in the Atlantic, a grid in the Pacific that was extreme effective at monitoring the undersea uh, uh, Soviet uh, submarine movements. And we also had these mobile ships called uh, Tiegos ships, uh, T-AGOS was their designation, military sealift command ships that uh, that helped plug the seams and gaps. And they, they would tow these very long cables to, to supplement the SOSIS environment. Uh, as P, you know, during the as the peace dividend hit in the 90s, the SOSIS system was essentially uh, retired for the most part. Uh, those the SOSIS system was very effective, but very expensive and high maintenance. Things corrode. Things need replacement. Things need updating. Uh, and that was one of the things to go for the most part um, was that the most of the SOSIS environment. Uh, and the Tiago ships essentially were all discarded with except for two. Now we're, we're, we're building a new class and trying to rush them into service of the Tiago ships. Um, <clears throat> not been a whole lot of open source talk on reconstitution of the, of the SOSIS, but kludging a bunch of data together, we're definitely trying to reconstitute at least parts of the SOSIS system. But again, that was also backed up by a very robust, we had roughly 200 P3, uh, 200 to 300 P3 Orions, the long-range anti-submarine force, and a, a much larger submarine force and surface force equipped with anti-submarine helicopters. Uh, we only have over a hundred of the P8s, which are more, I know are far more capable, far longer ranged than the P3s were, but a hundred versus two to 300, uh, uh, even if they're more capable, which is not the same, our submarine our, our submarine force is smaller, our, our surface ships with, with anti-submarine helicopters is smaller. So we're, we're having to put together a lot more capability fast. And the, uh, the Chinese uh, Chinese submarine force is growing. The the so the Russians uh, they have a a, a a a a they do have a navy uh, and it's it's hard for them to keep platforms at sea. But they they do have some platforms to put to sea. But yeah. uh, we just don't have, don't have that SOSA that SOSA system was incredible. Yeah, it, uh, was. it gave it gave us decisive situational awareness. And you know they might be out to sea, and the Soviets might have had a lot more subs, but we know we knew where every one of them was at, and could have take them out, take them out pretty fast. That's not the way it is today, and we have a lot of gaps and seams, just like we learned in the balloon balloon drama earlier this year. We have a lot of gaps and seam, seams in our undersea surveillance environment. Yeah, I don't think uh, most Americans are either old enough, or if they are, don't realize how drawn down our capabilities are. Look, when I was in Strategic Air Command as a captain, uh, actually as a second lieutenant, we had over 100 B-52 bombers uh, and over 400 KC-135 tankers at the time I came into that business. And, uh, you know, when I would, when we got a briefing, uh, when we were sitting nuclear alert, you know, we knew where 
every Soviet fleet package was, you know, specifically down to, you know, what the name of the ship was, when it was come out of port, when it's going back to port, et cetera. And we don't have that level of uh, intelligence capability that's focused on any one uh, threat nation or a group of nations right now, like we had when we had that, you know, that driving force was a single integrated operational plan, the big, you know, plan R, war plan R, like in, uh, <laughs> in Dr. Strangelove, uh, you know, everybody remembers uh, 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 the pilot talking, you know, we're gonna activate plan R. Well, the PSYOP, S-I-O-P, was, <laughs> it was the, the binding force that drove all of that stuff, you know? Uh, and folks, if you haven't read the book, Blind Man's Bluff, and it'll give you some insight into all the level of work and activity uh, that it took on, on the part of uh, Navy intelligence uh, and all the hard work and all of our intelligence agencies that exist as they became in existence at the time uh, that went into finding and tracking Soviet submarines. Blind Man's Bluff, you should read it. It's a, it's a fascinating book. Uh, it, but but yeah, John, I don't see that we have that level of focus of our entire apparatus. I mean, I mean, we are scattered from an intelligence collection, surveillance, and reconnaissance uh, uh, capability at the strategic level now uh, that we're going to have to get really laser back focused uh, and and find some forcing function that will enable us to do that, won't we? In order to have the right capability, even if we, as we bring new ships online and new capabilities online, we've got to have a forcing function <laughs> that gets us aimed at that target, right? Yeah, our, our decisive situational awareness is not what it used to be. And, 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 and again, a lot of these things, whether it be strategic ambiguity over Taiwan, whether it be uh, many other things, you know, when you have uh, a much larger force structure, when you have decisive situational awareness alongside that much larger force structure, you you can take risk in certain areas. Right now, the margin of risk is uh, we're we're already at a deficit anyway. We're already on the negative side of taking risk. Um, so, and because we really don't have that decisive situational awareness that we used to have, and the force structure, and the people will say, "Oh, the F-35 is far more capable than the F-16." Well, yeah, in some ways it is, but you know, a hundred F-35s versus five hundred F-16s. I'll take the five hundred F-16s. I'm sorry, you know, yeah. um, eleven carriers versus fifteen carriers. I'll take the 15 carriers. I mean, you know, if we got 40, roughly 40 to 42 attack boats, attack submarines right now, when we were uh, close to 80 during the uh, Cold War, I'll take the 80. I mean, this is uh, this is uh, silliness, and uh, you're never going to have enough resources for all contingencies, but... When you have that decisive situational awareness, when you have a much more robust, sizier military, you have a lot of cushion to and to move and reallocate uh, in relatively short time. Right now, we're playing with fire with what we have, and we're not even throwing in the crazy CRT and DEI aspect. Um, an Epic Times article caught me here, uh, and I've written several articles on this topic area, but. China's shipbuilding capacity more than 200 times greater than uh, America. Uh, I frankly, uh, and who wrote this one? Uh, uh, you know, J.M. Phelps. I don't. I don't know who J.M. Phelps is at, at Epic Times, even though I'm a contributor there. I don't know how we come up with 200, but uh, I, I, I believe it. Uh, I mean, we just—it's a joke. We're not even close to it. I mean, and. You know, talk, you've heard me talk. I'm an Army guy, but I talk about shipyards because this is the Pacific yeah. and the showdown. This is a Navy and Air Force game, so everybody needs to brush up on their Air Force and Navy uh, to understand what's going on. And even Army was Army was four years ago was in the middle of 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 uh, dispensing with every single one. <laughs> 
of its once mighty watercraft uh, watercraft fleet. And uh, when they were going to, we were going to do away with it. We had no need for it, even though we had just come out in the army with, you know, multi-domain operation, uh, you know, uh, you know, field manual. And yet we're doing a. Well, how can you be multi-domain if we're doing away with every single watercraft in the U.S. Army inventory? Well, now, uh, well, they, they, the generals. Uh, fortunately, we had some wise generals who said, "Yeah, that's probably not a good idea." They reversed that. And uh, now they're, uh, the Army is really getting into the game and recapitalizing its watercraft fleet. And there was a great article today on a joint Army-Marine operation where you had, and the Army's going to, oh, it was General Flynn, uh, uh, the brother of uh, General Flynn. So, Joe Flynn. So we, yeah, yeah, Joe Flynn uh, is announcing the Army is moving a, a watercraft uh, unit with 19 major watercraft forward to Japan to support the Taiwan scenario. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I just don't think people understand our lack of capability. We have less than 100 uh, nuclear long-range bombers right now that are nuclear capable, uh, and their <laughs> sea rates are, are probably about 60%, uh, you know? So uh, 60, 60 aircraft uh, compared to 600 plus in 1991. Uh, and uh, the same kind of thing, you know, John, it's, uh, uh, we've got to get focused on that. You know, one of the things I support in my senator, his name's Roger Wicker. He's the senior GOP on the Armed Services Committee in the Senate. He's written two, two or three articles recently uh, about increasing our shipbuilding uh, capability. Uh, we have shipbuilding operations in southern Mississippi here on the Gulf Coast. And, uh, and he's right. He, he's absolutely right. You know, I don't agree with him on a lot of things, but that thing, I definitely support him on uh, because uh, we've got to get uh, our capabilities uh, ramped back up. Our, our industrial capabilities is what we're weak in. Well, we've got to take one more break. When we come back, we'll bump it back up to the uh, to the strategic political level there and talk a little bit more about this ambiguity or not uh, and hear from uh, presidential candidate Donald Trump uh, as we go into this, this last segment. I'm Rob Manus. We'll be right back. If you're like me and you want to be prepared for the unexpected. That's where the wellness company's emergency medical kit comes Over 40% of Americans say that they would avoid a doctor or a hospital unless it was a catastrophic situation. Medical emergency kits with ivermectin. The kit contains eight potentially life-saving medications for you to keep on hand in the event of natural disasters, supply chain shortages, medical emergencies, or like an apocalyptic situation. These are the actual medications that you would need in the event of certain situations. So they've got emergency antibiotics, antivirals, antiparasitics. China guessing. Former U.S. President Donald Trump spoke with NBC's Meet the Press over the weekend. When asked if he would provide military support to Taiwan if China invaded, here's what he said. I won't say, because you give away all your options. Now, a heated debate is raging in Washington over strategic ambiguity versus strategic clarity in defending the island. Biden has repeatedly said U.S. forces would defend Taiwan if China invades, though the White House walked back the statement. Back to the interview on NBC, Trump said U.S. carmakers should reject the Biden administration's push toward electric vehicles, saying U.S. jobs in the field will vanish within three years because all electric cars will be made in China. The auto workers are being sold down the river by their leadership, and their leadership should endorse Trump. Welcome back to The Rob Manus Show. We're talking about the situation with Taiwan and China uh, that's been happening the last three or four weeks, especially with retired U.S. Army Colonel John Mills. Uh, he's a former senior DOD official uh, and author, and he's got a new book coming out, <laughs> The War on the Deep State, uh, that uh, we want to get everybody to get a copy of and go buy his, uh, his, other, his first book, The Nation Will Follow, 
Very, very good books, uh, John. But uh, we heard from Trump there a little bit, uh, uh, you know, and he actually says that he, he says what he means, I think, most of the time. Well, I'm not going to say because I don't want to give away all, all he usually puts it in the terms of a, hand, a card hand, you know, don't want to. Don't want to show my cards yet, and that's that's good, especially in nuclear <clears throat> terms. Ambiguity, strategic ambiguity, uh, is actually necessary for successful nuclear deterrence. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, there is a big debate going on: should we or should we not be saying that we'll defend Taiwan, which is a declared U.S. vital national interest? Which, folks, that's something that we would be willing to go to war over if we say it's a vital national interest and then lay out the reasons why. Well, well for decades, uh, the U.S. policy across presidents, uh, Democrat or Republican, was strategic ambiguity in regards to Taiwan. And that works when you have a very robust U.S. military. And we were talking about carriers there earlier, how many forward. I mean, in the, in the old days, when we had at least 15 carriers, um, we always had two at sea in the Western Pacific, not in port, at sea in the Western Pacific, one, at least one in the Indian Ocean, at least one in the Mediterranean, and at least one in the North Atlantic. Normally now, we only have two or three at sea in Florida areas, period, okay? Yeah. So strategic ambiguity works when you have overwhelming force. We're in a very dangerous thing. But also, it also, the calculus is also based upon who's saying strategic ambiguity. When Trump says strategic ambiguity, the Chinese are going to pay attention. When Biden says he is going to defend Taiwan and then the white, and this has happened, uh, T I know Tiffany uh, Myers of, of Epic Times there uh, says it was walked back. It's been locked, there's been like three separate episodes where the White House walked back the right. we will defend Taiwan statement. That's not strategic ambiguity. That's just uh, being a total doofus uh, when it comes to being a world leader and just saying stupid things. Um, so to have Jake Sullivan, you know, well, you know, the president, uh, he didn't really mean to say we were going to defend uh, Taiwan, you know, and you know, for and then you got Jake Sullivan who has no uh, legitimacy uh, or credibility. So you have uh, Biden, Sullivan. So that that just this. this it's dangerous. So their version of strategic ambiguity, meaning Biden and Jake Sullivan, it's dangerous because it's obvious they're whittling down and hollowing out our military and uh, everything else. And then they saw the, the debacle at Bagram. They, I mean, Biden and Sullivan have, have very low credibility with China. Trump has a lot of credibility. So yeah. um, it's... Uh, this silliness, uh, I think we need to be more resolved, more clear, because it's it's coming to a danger point, and we are finding ourselves under-equipped, under-resourced. So yeah. that's not not a good idea, and they know it, and that the other team knows it. So as we as we rebuild now, in all fairness, the 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 2023 National Defense Authorization Act that Biden signed in December, which is what is ca causing, because it was unambiguous in the NDAA, and that there's been very little talk about the, the wording of the NDAA. It made it clear we essentially have new policy on Taiwan. We will defend Taiwan. So let's just stop this silliness. Um, and because that's our, our, our NDAA, our law says we will defend Taiwan. Just look at the NDAA uh, and the numerous statements on Taiwan. Yep. And uh, so, but we've, uh, we're finding ourselves, China has at least the equivalent nuclear force to us, which Russia already has. So we're down two to one nuclear weapons. When you look at the Chinese uh, Russian alliance, down two to one. Uh, we're we're slow on the recapitalization of our nuclear triad. We're slow on our on our military. There was a big spike in military spending in the in the NDA and the appropriation, but it's going to take years. It's going to take years. Yeah, we've just on the nuclear force side, the stockpile. We, I mean, it's a Cold War stockpile. It's not a 21st century 
uh, stockpile. Yeah, we approved uh, the uh, <laughs> upgrades like the B sixty one twelve, which is a gravity bomb, but that now has a tail guidance, I think, or something like that, which is better. Uh, but uh, uh, but but the you know the inner workings of the weapons are all you know mid twentieth century design and capability and have been sitting for a long long time uh, you know and uh, uh, it, just because the plutonium or you know the uh, the uh, you know the materials uh, the nuclear materials uh, don't decay very rapidly the other materials that may or may not be inside that weapon are interacting with each other and with that uh, and those kind of things and we've got a lot of refurbishment that needs to be done to get our nuclear capabilities uh, to the right uh, reliability level uh, because they have to be reliable demonstrably reliable uh, and I think you're right. We do need to be less ambiguous on the conventional defense of Taiwan because we are weak. We've weakened ourselves. Uh, I still think we've weakened ourselves because of what we're doing with Ukraine against Russia. Uh, uh, and, and you combine that with the debacle in Afghanistan. And then you mentioned it earlier, the critical race theory, deep dif uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, hollow it's hollowing out the officer and senior NCO corps warrior ethos from what I can tell talking to people that are leaving the service or not signing up in droves. Yeah, we, we, we have serious issues with our, our military force structure, our military readiness. And uh, so uh, it's getting very, very dicey. And uh, so be being sophisticated and nuanced like uh, the blue team and Jake Sullivan like to do, uh, mm -hmm. the, China sees right through that. It's just, I mean, that all they're doing is virtue signaling between themselves and Center for Strategic and International Studies and Council on Foreign Relations and the Belfer Center. It's just a bunch of people trying to impress each other with their sophistication. The Chinese see right through that and uh, just dismiss it. So uh, yeah. it doesn't. That's not doing. It's 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 creating a more dangerous situation. Um, Oh, absolutely. And I think that's why you see more more muscle flexing on the part of the Chinese, uh, uh, both tactically and strategically. You know, they treat they treat our se most senior people uh, poorly when we meet. Uh, you know, everybody saw how they treated Anthony Blinken the first time they sat down with him up in Alaska, and uh, and, and it's continued ever since. And then you know, talking about these exercises and, and movements. Uh, uh, that we're seeing new things in, uh, uh, and you combine that with what President Xi's doing, removing people and everything, we are in a very dangerous situation, partly of our own making, partly of our own making, large part, really, of our own making. Well, man, uh, tell folks, uh, let's talk about the book for a little bit before we close out here, and tell folks where they can uh, find you, what your coordinates are, John. Uh, just go bring that book cover back up so we can talk about the new book. and. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so Ed Martin, uh, uh, the Phyllis Schlafly uh, Eagle uh, uh, Forum, I was just uh, with him and uh, uh, at, at a major gathering uh, in St. Louis. So uh, I appreciate Ed writing the wonderful forward, but I have some great endorsements, uh, General Flynn, Sam Sormo, uh, Ambassador Pete Hoekstra, uh, General Blaine Holt, and Vandersteel. Um, the book is out on the 2nd of October. Just go to www.waragainstthedeepstate.com. You can pre-order Kindle now. Hard and soft come out on the 2nd of October, waragainstthedeepstate.com. And uh, it's all about uh, uh, the, the unlawful fourth, fifth, and sixth branches of government, the foundations of the surveillance state, and again, citizen action to take it out, which 97% of your actions should be at your seven local centers of gravity in your county, your school board, your uh, <clears throat> election board, county council, registrar, sheriff, judges, and prosecutors. And if you want to and have effect at the national level, crash the market cap of these woke companies. You've done a great job, American Patriot. You've done a great job. Pat yourself on the back. So there, I'm Colonel Rhett John, Colonel R.E.T. John, Substack, Getter, and Truth. All right, John. Well, 
Uh, well, thank you very much for joining me today for this uh, in-depth discussion. Uh, and uh, we appreciate it, uh, appreciate your time, and I look forward to having you back uh, uh, in the near future. You, you got can tell it, Rob. Thanks, sir. Appreciate you. All right, folks, uh, that's it for tonight. I uh, just wanted to make one comment. We've made a little poke a little fun at F-35, Marine Corps F-35 pilots, but I just want you to know that in their war college, in the lobby, there's a statue of an Air Force pilot. He's a combat pilot. His name's John Boyd, and he created what's called the OODA loop, Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. And the OODA loop uh, creator, Mr. John Boyd, uh, retired Air Force fighter pilot, he's now passed away, uh, is the greatest of the great when it comes to military strategy in the 20th and 21st century. And the Marine Corps recognized it too. Uh, so uh, be praying for that gentleman that had to eject out of that aircraft last week uh, and for all uh, of our military service members and their families because they got a tough job and they're facing some tough things right now. I'm Rob Manus, Red Voice Media Network. We are dangerous because we're audacious and we bring you the facts and the truth, whether you like it or not. And that's why Tucker Carlson is still laughing at the bad guys. <laughs>